0: just go ahead and do it. So, with that being said, welcome, this is the Maker Chat Synth DIY podcast. I'm here today with Gavin. Thank you very much for you know, making the time to come and talk to us. Please, can you say a few words about yourself?
1: Well, first, thanks very much for having me on. I really do appreciate uh, being asked to do this. Um, I am probably first and foremost a bass player and an artist, and composer, but and all the other time that I have free, basically, Um, like to fire up the solder and iron, build things, repair things, and hopefully they work after I've finished with them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what was the, um, can you remember what inspired you to get into um, soldering and working on electronic modules?
1: Well, actually I was thinking about this the other day in the lead up to this, and it was, we had a class called Tech Studies in high school that only ran in third and fourth year. And it was one of the few classes I got a decent grade in, actually. (laughs) And then they didn't run it for hires, which was disappointing. But that was based around all sorts of understanding different technical aspects, pneumatic circuits, programming, pit controllers, and a big chunk of it was uh, electronics. And we built a radio kit, one of the old, you might remember these Velman that did the Maplin kits. Um built one of those, did a radio and since then just thought this is amazing and as soon as I could connect that
0: to guitar, that was a different train of thought I just never really looked back since Yeah that's great um, I do remember the Maplin kits, in fact um, I remember my first electronic project that I can remember working on was this auto Um I don't know if you remember that because I-, I can't exactly remember how the Projects kind of came about. I know that there was a Maplin magazine, and somehow I ended up getting the kit, and it was like a metal container with um, PCB and three knobs on it, and it was it was an auto wire pedal. It's actually quite interesting. I actually found um, recently on the web this the instructions for it. You know when you do one of those nostalgia searches. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I can, I can. Was your kit one of those ones where you had a, a nail and you you'd go round the nail?
1: No, so it was, it was a kind of just a traditional kind of green PCB kit, but it was all done on the PCB. So even the speaker kind of mounted to the circuit board. So it was really fiddly. I mean, kudos to the teacher for trusting <laughs> fifteen students who are in a class where people are wanting to throw rubbers and pencils rather <laughs> rather than build circuits to actually give us these kits and go have at it but actually just when you said that about the Ottawa um was that one of the ones with the sort of
0: yellow circuit board it was I think so yeah I do I do remember I mean I remember the it's more like the strange things like the font of the um well, or the instructions, it was so 80s, 90s kind of look about it.
1: Well, I saw one of them two or three weeks ago in the local guitar shop. Um, I sometimes help out in there when they're needing holiday cover and actually do some pedal repairs for them there. Um, great guys, have a great laugh with them. Went in to pick some stuff up, and one of the one of the guys that works there also teaches when I mean, he's not there, like me. Went, one of my students brought these in. His dad built them in the 80s and went... You've got to look at these. And we opened it up, it was one of those Matlin auto Maplin auto jackets. Wow. Um semi working, which considering the age of it was impressive. <laughs> but it was a massive enclosure. Like this thing was kind of big muff sized for the circuit board. And as soon as I looked at it, I thought, this thing is amazing. <laughs> I spent more time looking at it than he
0: did playing it. Yeah, It does make you think because basically, if you think about it, an auto wire is essentially like an LFO controlling um, the frequency, I guess, of the wire um, in time. I I can't remember. I seem to remember it having three knobs on it. I couldn't tell you what they do, but they were those big black kind of like bobbly edged kind of knobs. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was a dark grey enclosure. Um, with a single push button on the top from memory, um, it do- it does make me immediately want to start looking it up again.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's definitely the same one with the three the three knobs. This one only had one that worked though. So <laughs> uh, over time, there'd been it clearly lived a difficult life of. I think of the cables had been disconnected just through age. Um, I don't think they'd really been used for years. Um, But the one knob that worked kind of set it from that really subby hurts your ears to that really high hurts your ears. (laughs) (laughs) There was no real midpoint. It was really painful, low end, really
0: painful top (laughs) (laughs) end, with a sweet spot in the middle. (laughs) So would you say it was um, pedal builds that kind of first got you into the idea of soldering then?
1: It was the idea pedal builds that really, I mean, for me it was... I did that and then immediately went on Runoff Groove uh, for all their circuit designs. And it was a long time of not actually building, but learning about the process kind of on paper. So I'd built the kit for the radio, and that was great. And there was a lot of builds I wanted to do. And like any teenager, it's, I want to build stuff that's going to be epic and there was no knowledge at that point. So it was lo- lots of years of trying to learn the principles, but not picking up the and iron again. And then I even, my, my teacher was great in high school. He even gave me a pack of parts for one of the runoff groove builds um, from the existing parts in the school. And it was just, yeah, we've got that, we've got that. Everything else you need, here's a list. Go on, Maplin, because it still existed, actually, in Dundee at the time as a store. Um But then, I mean, those parts are still in that box. It never became the pedal. (laughs) It never actually got built. And then it was when I started to get more into synthesizers that I started to really like. I mean, they're so expensive as well. At least they used to be that I had to start thinking, I can build things, can maybe give this a go. And then the pedals kind of came back to life as well. And now it's, well, there was a table sitting over there with about five different circuits on breadboards.
0: So um, can you tell us about one of your favourite projects um, and what made it special to you? Well,
1: the repairs has been the biggest part lately and one of the ones that I've really, I mean, on the repair front, had a uh, hand-wired fuzz face that someone had built a, a negative voltage inverter in it <laughs> because it was the, it was one of the, I always get this the wrong way around, basically the the fuzz phases that work off negative nine volts, and this thing was it it made no sound when I got it and it was it became like a detective show <laughs> <laughs> of trying to figure out who murdered this pedal and how <laughs> um and it was quite a while investigating and it ended up being that charge pump, so I ended up building a new one for it um, it was all done on stripboard anyway, the charge pump, and I ended up doing this rabbit hole of investigation and learning so many other things i would never looked into before and that's led to what i'm working on now which is a mod box for the moog workstep
0: and that would never have happened without that pedal repair that's great i mean what i'm learning about your background i mean it's quite uh, it makes a lot of sense now because obviously you know a few years that i've been um following you on instagram and primarily I knew you as a bass player. I mean, you're always putting out music, you're um, you're always, you know, putting out bass-specific um, posts. And, I, you know, I, when I met you at Synthfest in nine, um, 2019 or 20, I, I saw how enthusiastic you were about um, synthesizers. But at the time, I suppose, I didn't know any of this background. So it's great to hear about all this, um, you know, history you've got with electronics, it really makes a lot more sense now. And
1: it's, it's been an interesting journey, to be honest, because I didn't talk about this side for quite a bit. And I mean, I grew up in a household where music was all kinds of music. For my mum, it was Def Leppard, Motown and everything in between. And on my dad's side, it was everything from Elvis to Gary Newman, Jean-Michel Jarre, Kraftwerk, Yellow, all that sort of stuff. So, sound has been a big part of everything. So, as much as I'm a bass player, I very rarely want to sound like one. <laughs> <laughs> because the music I grew up listening to, some of it was great bass playing music, some of it was the complete opposite. Um, so, pedals, I mean, the obsession with the pedals came about from being a a bass player who really wishes they were a synthesizer. <laughs>
0: I, I totally understand that I on the way um to this um podcast today I stopped in at my friend's um guitar shop and the first thing I do is I make a beeline for the um for the pedals just to make sure that there's nothing interesting in there because like mm-hmm. you, I mean my my background is actually playing the guitar from when I was a teenager and I was always interested in pedals um because and I didn't really know anything about synthesizers At that point, I thought they were just keyboards. I didn't really, I didn't know about the analog synthesis at all. Um, It's only in later life I came to know that. But I was always kind of attracted to what you could do with pedals. Little did I know that actually that same kind of interest I had was essentially what I'm playing out now with the synthesizers. That's that's great, because that's exactly
1: how I felt. Um, And it's that. I think that's why the modular synth Appeals so much to me Because to me I view modular synth and pedal boards As one and the same It's chaining one thing to another And just seeing where it goes And you might have an idea in your head But you never really know what's going to happen When you start chaining things together And I think that creative aspect as well um, The two are very similar in that way
0: Yeah I think that the um, first kind of exposure You have to that is using Like a patch bay isn't it because you kind of, mm. um, when you look at all of the pedals individually, um, initially you're kind of just thinking, "Oh, that's a delay. That's a tremolo." You know, don't really. Oh, that's a filter. That's a bit more interesting. But when you start patching them, just on a patchway, you suddenly start to get exposed to like a whole different layer of creativity, don't you? Which you don't see. Exactly. When. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I remember the first
1: time I really saw a modular synth and thought. What on earth is that? It, it, and it was a weird setting as well, because I mean, I'd grown up watching live videos of Gary Newman. That was my real exposure to synthesizers was Gary Newman and Jean-Michel Chagher. And they're played keyboards. They're like keyboard synths on everything. So that was always in my head. Like yourself, you think keyboard synthesizers, one and the same. And it was when I saw Muse at Wembley. And had Morgan Nichols uh, modular off to the side with the blipping lights that we just keep going during some of the songs, and he was singing, "What's that?" <laughs> it was my dad that said he went, "That's a modular synth." I was like, "Expand? <laughs> like, what's that?" And he's like, "That's that's how they work. You don't need a keyboard for one." And at that moment, it was kind of a. <laughs> Cause i'm not a, i don't know about yourself but i am not a piano player i can play keyboards and as a bass player synth bass you have to have a little bit right hand dexterity to play some simple lines but i'm not a piano player so the ability to have a synthesizer that i can plug a sequencer into and it won't be as sloppy as me playing it happy days
0: <laughs> i know what you mean i mean when you find out about sequences. And you think, well, you don't really need musical ability to use a sequencer. You can literally just set the you know, the clock speed, twiddle some knobs, and off it goes. <laughs> it's very relieving to find something like that at first because it, it gives you that mental space to then explore some of the expression with the synthesizer itself, which is definitely handy if you're not a natural musician. And that there is the one thing that, I dislike
1: about being a bass player is because your hands are constantly in use playing bass, you don't have that expressive element of being able to have a sound and then just tweak away and change things up. The modular obviously is great. You can start a sequence going and it's it's like the drummer that never misses a beat. It's just great. And you can just keep going. And well, if I just patch this into this, take your time, do all these things. And you get there in the end to what you something you like. It might not be what you initially wanted, but you'll go somewhere. Um, and it's that's actually been part of my goal with the pedals I've been designing is to free up what you can do, maybe with foot controllers and things, to give that expressive element to the base, because it is the one thing I feel like I've never been able to get out with. I mean, there's some amazing pedals like some of the British builders I've been working with lately um on their overdrives and fuzz pedals and things. Unbelievable. But what I would love is the ability to control all that in the same way that the modular synth can can do the things. It's a different animal.
0: Do you want to talk about a bit um bit about your um your pedal development that you've been doing?
1: Yeah, it's it's been a bit of a mad science lately. Um <laughs> There's a lot of um, half-built circuits on the desk just now. Um, I'm a bit all over the place at times. um, Because I'm balancing different things, and I teach guitar and bass at night, so it's during the day when I've got three hours, I'll, I'll build stuff. Um, but the goal is to bring that modular aspect to pedals for guitar and bass. And also things that might allow a, a bit of modular control over synthesizers. So although you might be running, like for instance, i really like the uh, GU6 from Roland, which is like a chord synth. Great for, again, sequence it, and it just never misses a beat. But it'd be great to have a processor after that, that can maybe interact with the modular to give it a little bit more flexibility. So that's that's the aim of what we're doing. Um, the one, I'm, I'm eyeing up out of the corner, actually, because I've <laughs> just clocked it there in the corner. Um, it's Start life is like a filter, um, but it's got a little bit more, it's grown a few arms and legs. <laughs> so we'll see where where it all goes, but um, things are going in the right direction.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean that's really exciting because I think um, a lot of people lean towards the bass. I mean, I've certainly been interested in, you know, like using it in my own music. But then you realise that learning a new instrument is is never going to be easy at first you you make the mistake of thinking oh the bass has only got four strings and in the bass you know in the standard form uh, i can pick root notes okay i can use octaves okay but actually the bass is so much more than that and the expression and the link with the bass drum and the kind of the ability for for the bass to become an instrument in its own right is when it's done well, it certainly stands out. I mean, is there any particular bass players that you're inspired by?
1: For me, it's largely the Fretless guys. Um, in fact, it's something I didn't realise, again, it's another Gary Newman thing, that my favourite albums were Warriors from 83 and the two that preceded that, Dance and I Assassin, which one of them was Mick Karn from Japan. And one of them's Pino Palladino before everybody knew who he was so it's fretless fretless and fretless (laughs) Um, and it's to me it's just how a bass should sound Um, so it's Pino Palladino is probably the biggest one for me again uh, another one with the pedals the the OC2 Octaver to me that is just the Pino sound
0: (laughs) I might be a Philistine I don't know but I know there's certain tracks that spring out to me um like i didn't realize really like how much the bass you know like in um the Paul Simon bass player what's that guy's name um,
1: oh um, Bikiti kamalo yeah
0: he's unbelievable that guy is that is that a fretless bass that he plays yeah yeah
1: so on is it, uh, for the Graceland album Yeah, it's all fretless
0: um because yeah, that, that that one in the 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 famous bass solo that he plays in, um, is it not? Is it Diamonds on the Souls of a Sh- No Shoes? I can't remember. No, um, Call Me Al, The Call Me Al bass solo. That is like literally one of my, you know, childhood, greatest memories of like being with my brothers, dancing around in the lounge, listening to that bass solo and pretending to like play air bass to it. <laughs> I still do that now. I still do it. Absolutely, but yeah, that but that that sound is pretty unique. I mean, it's very powerful. That um, you know, sorry if you know I'm obviously speaking to yourself, who's like an expert in the bass. And oh, probably... don't know about that. Well, <laughs> don't know if we'll use that word. <laughs> well, well, certainly, you know, in in your own personal taste, you will understand and be able to talk to um, people who do have a good understanding of it. But I think for me that. I mean, it's really interesting that I'm sure people will be wanting to look into um, some of the suggestions you've got. Um, it's definitely a subject, the fretless bass. So um, you mentioned, um, what, what was the chap's name?
1: Uh, Pino Palladino. Um, as, it, as it goes for bass players, I mean, even out with fretless, he's a tall chameleon. Recently, so he did the D'Angelo stuff in the 90s, Um currently with John Mayer. then before that, or interspersed with that, was with The Who. Um, wow. And was also recently touring with Nine Inch Nails. Um, so it's a bit of everything. And then he's famously did the Paul Young, wherever I lay my hat, that fretless line that kind of blankets all of that is him. But what people don't realise is before he got all of those gigs, he did a year with Gary Newman when he did his experimental stuff and that to me is the real you hear like the foundation for what he became afterwards you hear all the things that you heard on the radio three or four years later and you go wow that's so new, he was doing all of that and maybe pushing it a little bit further and then it was like you had to reel it back in for pop radio but he just got like carte blanche <laughs> to do whatever he wanted at that point Um
0: that's great. I mean, go on, sorry.
1: sorry. No, on you. I was, you.
0: I was just going to say, what I'm, before I forget, I would really like to um, make sure that as a follow-up for the listeners, we um, capture some of these um, kind of names and suggestions from yourself because I think it'd be really nice to have um, people have the ability to be able to follow up on these guys because I, I think that's fascinating how you've linked the Gary Newman work to his later pieces. And I don't think people would have realised quite how widespread his work was i mean that's an amazing degree of change isn't it between nine inch nails uh gary newman i mean it's just incredible those artists you wouldn't think that there was that heritage within the same player
1: that that's it and there's another guy actually has a, a similar vein that went a bit different um joe hubbard now if you type him in on youtube or on instagram he's probably one of the biggest bass teachers in the world now um big jazz guy, and I mean, the kind of jazz where it's like, theory is king, and you really have to know your stuff, and that's him, but he also was the bass player on Gary Newman's Warriors album, which is the furthest thing from jazz you could possibly get, <laughs> but actually, kind of going back to what I said before, there's a, there's a recording of that tour live, um, I think it was at the Hammersmith Odeon. It's an old BBC recording that you can get from when they played it on the radio, um, I think in 85, maybe it's a wee bit later, uh, of that tour. And it's, the sound of that tour was the ARP Odyssey, some Moogs, and a fretless bass. There's saxophones and things going on as well. But when you listen back to it live, it's basically fretless bass and an ARP Odyssey. And the, the duo together, it formed a blueprint for my album. Because to me, that sound of those two just woven in
0: together and thought, that's it. <laughs> that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. That. It's amazing, isn't it? All that inspiration, all from Gary Newman as well.
1: Yeah. Played a big role. And it. it's it's all from my, my parents, that one. Uh, Mum and dad. Are both my dad more so with Gary Newman. Um, and David Bowie as well. Like m- really big fans of both of them. In fact, the Labyrinth soundtrack,
0: is what got me playing Fretless Bass in the first place <laughs> <laughs> That's another one for the list I, it's, I mean certainly from when we come off this podcast I'm going to be making sure I check all these out because it, it's amazing the links between all of these artists and these eras I mean my, uh, obviously Labyrinth is something which I grew up with um, you know it's a, it's a classic I mean so what was the link with Labyrinth then?
1: So the song As the World Falls Down um, from the ballroom scene, I think it's Will Lee uh, who's playing bass on that. Um, it's a fretless again. in that melody, I remember the first time I heard that and when my dad's, well, I think it was my dad that said it at that point, that it was, um, that was a fretless bass. And I thought, right, need me one of those. Um, <laughs> and actually, I since found out that had that been available um as a single at the time when they got married that was going to be my mum and dad's first dance Amazing. which would have been pretty cool but i think it was um brian adams instead so it's not a bad shout but <laughs> but some fretless bass would have been a good story <laughs> oh yeah
0: i'm starting to i'm feeling the love for it Lena, just listening to how passionate you are about it <laughs>
1: it's a it's a it's a niche field there's there's only a few of us that still love it as much as as I do, but I think it needs to come back it needs its resurgence
0: <laughs> so um is that is that what you do are you um a professional base um, teacher is that what you do full time
1: for the most part um mostly in the evening sort of afternoon evening onwards um and then I'll also do some repair work and then uh my writing and things like that um the building has started to kind of build up steam again getting back into that it had to take a bit of a back seat when i was finishing the album because that was becoming a stupidly set a date before i had it all mixed and lesson learned mix and master everything before you even announce a date to release an album because (laughs) that was so stupid (laughs) but thankfully being able to get back to everything
0: now How how long were you... Can you tell us a bit about the album? How long were you working on it for?
1: So that album took probably about two years. Um, But there's songs on the album that were written probably about seven or eight years ago that just never got finished. Wow. Um, They they were started when I used to do the... So for a few years I did session work, um, kind of local session work. And because the gigs were kind of so regular, I would I would start a song and then it would go in the back burner for years and it was when I was going through old iPads wiping them so that we could um, update operating systems and stuff, I was like <laughs> forgot about that song <laughs> get that on the computer because <laughs> um, I used to write on GarageBand wow. on my iPad because like I say, I said this to you before we started the podcast, me and technology the soldering and stuff is great um you might burn yourself once or twice, but it makes sense. Computers to me. No go. <laughs> Ableton Lives the Limit.
0: <laughs> so you know, with the soldering side of things, what kind of um setup have you got? Is it um do you like doing through hole or um have you got into any surface mount stuff?
1: Everything's through hole just now. Um I have been considering going the surface mount route. Um, it's it's been on been on my mind um, mostly since I've started looking at how I go about doing the production side of my pedals because I'm still debating currently whether, in fact, maybe some of the listeners could uh, chime in on this at some point if they've got suggestions. Please send them over because I'm still debating whether to go fully handmade and actually go um, islet and go. Kind of point to point wired, um, or whether I go the PCB route and maybe, maybe you can go surface mount because I know you can shrink things down as well. Um, so it's a bit of a, it feels like it's a bit of a weighing it up currently, um, but for now, everything's through hole.
0: How are you actually designing them? Are you, because obviously they're, you know, if you're doing, have you got PCBs, um, what are you using?
1: everything just now um everything's currently living on breadboards cuz it's still very much in the let's take 4 hours to change out capacitors to see how we feel yeah. <laughs> at this point um the initial prototypes will be stripboard just for ease but it's i'm really weighing up whether to build it more like the way guitar amps are and run the uh can't remember the word for it now the fiber board turrets or islets and actually do it all individual connections like that. Cause I, I think it looks quite nice, the the handmade thing. Um especially when it's done turret board, I quite like that components in straight lines and things like that. But the PCBs obviously offer a lot of stability, a lot of consistency. So it's it, it's a it's a real choice just now. Thankfully I've got many more hours of making choices over capacitors <laughs> before after pick, but um yeah. What about yourself?
0: Do you have a preference? Um I I like building surface mount purely um, at first I was dead against it, but I, I prefer building surface mount because I find that the kind of physical manipulation of through hole is quite time consuming and also is prone to kind of soldering related issues like say if you wanted to remove a resistor on the through hole the process is a lot more fiddly than with surface mount um i don't like going down too small with surface mount but i find that the process of soldering the the, the kind of like i like to put myself into like automate you know almost like batch up to activities so for example like putting a drop of solder on each pad um like i get all the the surface mount out of uh, out of the packet, line them up, get the tweezers, hold the the iron in the, the little blob I put on, and just place. And I think that what I what I like is that kind of separation of tasks into different activities, and then just almost kind of make myself into a pick and place kind of machine. And 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 that to me enables me to switch off and enjoy the process whereas I find that through-hole is a lot more fiddly. Um, and although I try to adopt a similar kind of mentality, I find that in the end, um, surface mount is just a little bit slicker for me. That's just my own findings. That's good to know, because I've often felt that way as
1: well, the through-hole thing, without helping hands to do some flip-over work and keep things right with certain components. It can get very fiddly. Um so are you running a separate soldering iron setup for surface mount?
0: No, I actually use quite a large soldering iron tip, um, and I've found that um, my method with through-hole, what I try to do is I try and place the um, the board, and then I place the components in, and then a bit like, do you know the Synth DIY guy on YouTube? Mm-hmm. I do the same method as him, where I solder from the top of the board, and then kind of in that way, it replicates what I do with surface mount. So, yeah, so I'm basically placing all the components in and I solder from the top and I find that a, it, what I look for, and, I you know, I have kind of been saying, you know, this is a probably a little bit overkill, but I look for like a nice flow right through the board. And I know that through hole, you don't necessarily need that, but I like to see it. I like to see that I've got the conditions exactly right. The solder's flow, you know, I've got like the nice... Um, temperature conditions and the solder's flowed all the way through, and I know that it's a good joint then. Um, and so, I, I kind of in that way I avoid the flip and turn because I think the flip and turn that's certainly where some of this physical shifting of the components, etc., can make quite a big play. Yeah,
1: that's that's good to hear, and that it's not just me that thinks all that stuff. <laughs> um, the other thing as well is that's interesting so it's a larger and iron head that you're using for right because I've been looking into it and I know that you can get dedicated stations for doing surface mount um I've always questioned whether that's totally necessary. I've seen plenty of people using their own traditional what they would use sorry traditionally what they would use um I've always kind of as a guy who's coming at this with no experience in that world um i've often wondered is it necessary or is it just fight and make do I, so that's I, good to know
0: yeah i personally don't buy into this idea that you totally need different um tooling for it again i'm only i'm using 0805 which is the, the one of the larger types of surface mount um but i find that it's plenty you know the right the right in fact if you have a smaller tip you kind of get localized melting of the solder and and it tends to kind of increase the chances of getting uh if you're removing a component for example the larger tip gets it all melted and all into like a fluid state so you can work on it easier whereas if it's smaller it tends to be more local and therefore you you're more prone to damage on the board that's my own findings it's probably different from
1: that makes a lot of sense though because it's, it's actually the same reason why further repair work but it's through hole, I use the smallest possible solder iron tip I can get so that I can get it very localized. So I'm effectively, it's bordering on keyhole surgery for a circuit board. (laughs) So
0: that makes a lot of sense. That um, that might come in very handy, that for me, actually. One of the most important things, really, is the use of um, a decent flux. And I tend to use this um, stuff, which is called RMA128 Kingbow, it's actually Darren from Racket Kits um, showed me this stuff. It's really quite a clean flux because initially I was using a, like a liquid flux and it was obviously when you put it on the board, it was spread out quite wide. But this one's like more like in a syringe and it comes out kind of jelly like and quite, quite local. And and, and that w- tends to help a lot with um, rework because the flux is once you've soldered once, the flux leaves the joint. And then if you go in a game with a soldering iron, it's sometimes difficult to get those same conditions which lead to the flux um, to the solder melting. So the, the flux is key um, to everything with soldering, but obviously um, the most important thing really is to clean it off. Well, I've, I personally think that clean conditions are the best, so obviously when you're using flux you've got to be um, careful to clean it off afterwards to make sure you've got nice clean conditions. That's
1: in fact after this. Can you send me the name of that flux again? Because yeah. uh, <laughs> that's something I've been in the market for as a better, better option. Um, so that's that's good to know. Um, it's funny you should say the rackets thing because that's that's where we first properly met. Although you can maybe clear up a timeline for me. Um, did we do the inner loop project that we were both on before
0: SynthFest or after? I think after. I think I, I think Actually Martin brought that up in the podcast um, Which I had with him oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> It's quite a long time ago
1: Yeah that was Was that Yeah because that would have been In the pandemic that we would have Like during the lockdown That we would have actually done the um, That project
0: Yeah I think it That's... was 2020 I want to say Maybe ah. Or 2019 <laughs>
1: That's all a blur for me That is all one year I remember playing my last uh, last show as a session bass player the, the Saturday between Christmas and New Year And then from maybe a week or two after that um, I know my mum had to go in for surgery in the January Once that was out of the way It was just straight into
0: It's three years of one year for me <laughs>
1: It's just one long year.
0: I, don't know, I know exactly what you mean. When we're talking about this now, that's why I, I can't believe it's 2023. I just can't believe it.
1: Yeah. I mean, interestingly, I was just having this conversation the other day because we're getting everything ready to start playing shows again. I looked out my PA that I bought. This is great timing. Two weeks before the lockdowns, <laughs> <laughs> it got its first outing. In public, maybe a month ago, oh. <laughs> it's been sat in its covers, never used. I had to fire it up in the house, very quiet, um, <laughs> just to make sure everything was working on it because it had never been used.
0: <laughs> I know. I think. Um, I think what I'm realising as well is like you're going to be like one of the few people that I can think of that actually in the in the synth DIY scene that actually is predominantly a musician as well, which is a really nice thing to have because most people that I, I know that it might be unfair, this might be unfair but like the synth DIY guys that I know, we tend we tend towards like wanting to like hide away solder things um, occasionally we come out of our lair and put something on Instagram um, and then shuffle back into the darkness again <laughs> would you... <laughs> Would you say that um, I've got that right? That music is like predominantly your your main focus.
1: See, for me, they go hand in hand because as someone who I find, see, I find the the pedal thing still like an artistic, creative endeavor. I mean, I've built kits, um, and I love building the kits when I have the time. In fact, I've still got some racket stuff from the 2019 synth fest that's to be built. Um, <laughs> that's usually how my timing is. <laughs> uh, so there's still things to be built, um, and I love doing that. But I like the creative side of it. And I love to think about the sound and what I'm doing as being kind of connected. In the same way that the modular, it's the enjoyment of the patching, but then it's also the the sound that you're getting from it. It's kind of both things connected. I see the same thing with the building so when i'm building something it still feels like i'm doing something musical um because at the end of the result, it's all it's a it's done with sound in mind um for me personally i know for other people it's it, it could be anything they're building whether it's a thermostat to like i don't know one of these piezo buzzer card systems it's and that i think it's fantastic that you've got people who just enjoy building for building's sake that's fantastic to me because that's the sort of people we need <laughs> that's how things get done the problem i've had and it's high school was exactly the same everything had to come back to sound and music i mean the only classes i got anywhere near a good grade in were where i could connect it to, <laughs> to sound physics I did terrible every aspect of physics, except from the electro, sorry, electric side, because it was magnetic fields in fourth year. And I was like, that's how that's like pickups work. That was great. So I did all of that classwork with pickups in mind.
0: <laughs> and that's how everything's been. That's fantastic. I'm, I, I'm sure a lot of people would be inspired by hearing about that link. Because I think, from my point of view, um, when I hear a musician's talk it really does make me feel something and I, I, it's great to hear your passion when it comes to music. Um, what advice would you give to somebody who wants to start out in synth DIY? <laughs> right,
1: <laughs> bear with me two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> this was not prepared for this but I keep this on the shelf for a reason so and I hate that it's a rackets kit as well that this has happened. <laughs> My biggest piece of advice is: no matter how much you can't sleep, don't decide to build a kit at three in the morning when you're still technically half asleep, or else you end up with a sequencer with a switch system that doesn't work, <laughs> and you absolutely melt the living daylights out of the pads oh. <laughs> trying to desolder it because your desoldering tool isn't isn't around because you should be soldering at this time of night. <laughs> and then you absolutely destroy a kit. So this lives on the shelf as a reminder that at nine o'clock, down tools. <laughs> it's a very good rule. But yeah. I mean, jokes aside, I think kits like this are the absolute best thing ever for... I mean, this one, as long as you're not an idiot like I was, this is a great first build for someone, something like the sequencer in the Atari Punk console. I mean, they're great kits. And I think what Rackets have done in particular is made building very accessible. Um, And it's the fact that you can literally spec it out to be as much of the kit as you want, really, even down to the battery. So there's there's nothing bar your soldering iron that you really need. Um, And I think something like that, these kits are probably a great way to test the waters even for if you've got half an hour you can probably knock up the Atari Punk console and kind of test the waters a bit what about yourself.
0: Oh, I couldn't agree more actually. I've got, um, you know, the, the accessibility that Racket have actually brought to the market with their kits is second to none and also the price point as well. So I think, um, you know, one of my criticisms of Euro Rack as a format is the high entry point with the price um and i think that can be a blocker you know not everyone has got the you know free money to be able to get into eurorack i certainly you know have a lot of empathy or like you know with anyone who wants to basically get into eurorack and they've seen the, the expensive modules out there it's very i mean that's one of the reasons why i wanted to get into the, the building was to try and keep that price down. It's a little bit naive because the price obviously <laughs> is still possible. <laughs> it's still possible to spend quite a lot of money on Eurorack um, modules, kits even. Um, but I think Racket and a few of the other um, builders have really made some very affordable entry points. And also there's you don't feel quite so bad if you do have a problem with a build and it's £30 pounds versus £200 pounds, for example
1: Um I mean I couldn't imagine making a mistake on the Deckard's Dream <laughs> that I remember seeing Robin Vincent um, saying that there was a problem with his one and thinking oh no <laughs> the numbers are climbing in my head and now it's dangerous
0: <laughs> yeah I know I, I built um, one of those Re303s you know the Dinsink 303 um um replicas and i had a problem with mine during the build and it is the kind of thing of nightmares because you're working on a fully populated board you know what the problem is and you've got to remove something um and you know that the the mental stress that you can go under trying to remove a component on a build that's got that many hours in it is incredible i know that people these days you can buy relatively inexpensive Desoldering tools and that's something that I have been meaning to do if I am going to, I think it's one of those things that you spend out, you know they're Chinese, they're probably copies of something but they're 100, 150 GBP um, and I think it could be money well spent Well, it's funny you should say that
1: I actually got, it's still quite a cheap option I, mean, I think I spent about 20 quid on mine and it's it's by far and away not a high-tech solution but see the the silicon tipped these soldering tools see for anybody that's starting out i would say don't go for anything but the silicon tipped at the very that's the very like basic i would say these plastic tipped uh, tipped ones that like to explode because <laughs> they're, they are completely plastic They last about a week for me anyway but these silicon tipped ones to me are a bit of a game changer for the affordable option because they, they do the job really well I found. Still not perfect but
0: they do the job really well Yeah I know the ones, they sell them um, Thonk sell them. they're like Japanese mm. engineering or something I actually recommended them recently on the non-linear circuits Facebook because someone was asking about them um, I found that one of the biggest issues with desoldering is visibility, so my eyesight is not great, I'm putting that out there. But I find that with use of braid, which I find quite okay, um, the best thing about, if you try and do it without being able to see the board well, even because the braid is essentially over the component, you're putting heat through the braid and it it can get to the point where you're kind of doing it on what you think in your, you know, like a a mental image of what's going on. Um, and you're not really using your eyes and I find that that's where overheating comes in the best way the yeah, the best way I've found is use i 've got a um a microscope a binocular one so it 's got two eyepieces. if I use that and i'm doing if i'm doing a removal and I really want it to be okay and i I can see what's going on then it's all fine but one of the biggest issues i think with soldering desoldering specifically is being able to see what you're doing. And it might sound obvious, but if you're, if if you really care about what you're doing, then really getting eyes on, down, at, you know, the biggest magnification possible, really has saved me a lot of stress and um, reduced damage.
1: That's a fantastic point. Though. I mean, I actually had a, I was repairing a UHF mic receiver um, recently, and obviously you're dealing in crystals and all sorts on that, so you've got to be careful. Even just localized heat, you've got to be very careful. And it was just changing out a switch. I think the desoldering. Once I figured out what was at fault, I had the switch there to change. It took me maybe about half an hour because it was it was a combination of a solder sucker and braid, and it was just it was doing small bits. Like you're saying, you you don't want to overheat things, so it's do a small bit and then give it five minutes just for the heat to completely dissipate and then maybe do a bit more and give it plenty of time. So the board's never actually getting hot anywhere other than right on that point. And like you say, that visibility of just always checking what you're doing, always checking that you're not getting heat marks anywhere and you're not starting to see things. I think, and I think like we've both basically implied there as well, taking your time. You uh, could probably do the part... Uh, tar- can't speak (laughs) you could probably do the atari punk console kit in about half an hour if it's your first build don't rush it just take the time it takes stick a podcast on stick some music on and enjoy the process
0: yeah i think because enjoying the process is a really good point because i think we've all got this kind of it's kind of like stems from i see it in my um my son actually you know when when he's when he's doing some kind of task he's got that kind of urge to um, complete to do it well Um, and that's completely at odds with the kind of mentality that you need to basically achieve it successfully because it's having that kind of process driven mind where you like separate the components you understand the components you understand the board having kind of being methodical maybe taking a photo of the board before you start um, that that was a really good tip actually that I had from um, I had a list actually of 10 different things that I put up on my Instagram years ago saying about um, you know my 10 lists of um, activities before you start take a picture make sure that um, you're not hungry <laughs> you know that you've because the thing is you can do something without thinking and and then regret it i think that's like comes from not taking your time that's a massive issue isn't it
1: that's a really big thing that and i think even that you say not being hungry <laughs> and it's that it is that thing of it should be an enjoyable process it's it's like building for kids building legos yeah it's like it it's not the thing you end up with at the end of building with legos it's the process of building it now like we are saying before, from a musician's standpoint, you're thinking in advance oh this is going to be great, the sounds I'm going to get from this and I, I would say I would put you in that camp as well because you, it's very musical what you get out of the modular synth so you're probably sympathised with that as well that there is that element of you buy the kit because of what you're thinking it's going to sound like and sometimes there is that financial thing of it's also costing me 50 quid less to get the <laughs> kit rather than to buy it built um, but I think it's the process. I mean, that's why we do it. It's great fun, that point, and it's very
0: relaxing if you get into it in the right way. I think sometimes the urge to finish it can be quite overwhelming. Like even recently I finished um, I worked on a frequency central methamp, which is the um, it's the um, electroharmonics big muff clone for Eurorack. It's actually really Ooh. good. It's really good module. It's so expressive like the the regen control um the tone everything about it it's very hot it's got a lot of gain, um, which I know some people worry about, but I think you can really it, it's an instrument in its own right because it's got so much express expressive capability but I came towards the end of the build and i all I had to do was the the panel fit um, and put the pots on etc and I know from experience in your head you're thinking all I've got to do is that and it's finished but instead and this is experience that's taught me this I packed it away and went and sat down and watched TV with my wife <laughs> and came back to it another t- time and like you say I actually enjoyed it it because I, I wasn't feeling tired I hadn't gone into overtime in my head uh, and I was able to complete it without ruining it which is always a bonus
1: that's <laughs> definitely
0: <laughs> But that
1: that aspect as well So Setting aside the time to do it But then no one went and just down tools And I've never been great at that um, In anything I mean this, this The songwriting process In fact, the mixing process for the album I was fortunate to have my, my dad around For a lot of the mixing And it's why he's got a mixing credit on the album Amazing. Because it's, it was great because he's my keyboard player for the live setup as well. And it's good having a second opinion and a second pair of ears to just go, I, mean, I this is going to sound ridiculous. So in Dundee, there's this, a major tangent, but we are bringing it back. <laughs> this is going <laughs> Billy Conley mode here off on the tangents. That's right. <laughs> um, I, in Dundee, we've got the Tay Bridge. And there's expansion strips in it and there's a walkway under the bridge where it has a uh, a spiral staircase up to it. And if you stand under there, you can hear the expansion strips kind of going, and I was walking under there one day and went, there's nobody around, phone out, and we're just going to get that sound (laughs) and looking like a total mug because there was people around, once I was in the process of doing it, standing with my phone under the expansion strip on this staircase and cut it up and used it is drums. Now, where's the blueprint for how you should mix that? There is none. That's amazing. I I well I critiqued that mix so much and it took having him around to go, you realise there's no blueprint for how a bridge should sound in a song. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're not getting the mix wrong. There is no standard for how you mix that <laughs> fair point. <laughs> but I could spend forever like that. When it's mixing and the problem is with the circuits as well I made mean, a joke to put it earlier but literally there has been days where i have sat down at the breadboard and it's been four hours of swapping capacitors now the circuit basically didn't change that day and it was just going what about this and then you, you finally get it happy and you go oh, well, you get yourself happy with it and you go what if i do this and then it's pulling everything out again and you end up with this thing where at the end of the day it's been completely unproductive but it's just not known when to say it's done and I think what you've just said there is a good example of the experience telling you when it's time to call it a day that
0: you know what down tools <laughs> we'll so,
1: come back tomorrow.
0: <laughs> so much of that is based on mood as well because I know myself like if I've if I've got some, uh, like a patch going on um and say for whatever reason i'm tired after work um not really feeling it i can i can carry on and, and in my head i think oh this sounds rubbish go away and then come back next day after you've slept or you know had breakfast and it's just it's a completely fresh day and you hear it and go wow <clears throat> this is great um, but it's exactly the same thing um so so much of that I think that, that I could imagine the, the danger with changing capacitors. It's almost like going into a hi-fi store and the guy's saying, "Ah, oh, these cables, these are the special oxygen-free um, gold-plated cables. Listen to how much better it sounds with these. <laughs> and you're like, oh, yeah. You're almost getting into that category, aren't you, with caps? <laughs> it's
1: funny you should say that about the cable thing, though. So a bit of a shout-out here to... Um... Practical Patch from uh, from Edinburgh, I think. I think he's based in Edinburgh now. Um, builds all the cables I use. Um, I've always been a cable sceptic. Like <laughs> I have always been the guy that goes, custom cables don't sound better. And like, and I saw his cables and thought, they look awesome. And he had the ones with the, the switching jacks, which are great. So it's like a little, almost like, kind of like a sheath on it that is spring-loaded. So it grounds Basically shorts it to ground when there's nothing Plugged in So you can plug a guitar in and out without muting Anything and There's no clicks and pops and it's great and I thought Having one of those And he went well when I looked at the spec It was using this um, Summer XXL um, I thought and he's like Super low capacitance you, It's odd but you will hear the difference I thought yeah right And I plugged it in and went no <laughs> he's right. <laughs> There's life in my sound that wasn't there before. And it's subtle. It's a very subtle thing. And I thought, I've been such a cable skeptic for years. And he's debunked it all for us in the wrong way.
0: <laughs> oh, that is what that is great. I'm I'm sure there is something to it. I'm sure there is. But I just suppose with the um you know with the spec of cables that I'm talking about. You don't really want to believe it too much because if you had like a Euro rack and you've got all the patch cables in the world and you had to re replace them all with these special ones, you'd be like,
1: <laughs> "Oh, yeah."
0: And interestingly,
1: that's I don't use any of that cabling on the pedal board. That's <laughs> the cable that runs from the guitar, well, from the bass to the pedal board, um, and on the pedal board, it's it's still high end cable, but it's it's decent. It's it's a good cable, but it's not. XXL because that stuff's like it's really when it's these long runs that you hear the difference. And that's the other thing with like the Euro rack stuff. I mean, I have to be, I have to confess that my setup's actually a different format to Eurorack. Um, which actually I don't know how you feel about this, and I wouldn't mind getting your opinion on this. I've been running the AE modular from tangible waves, and it's basically miniature Eurorack. Um and the, the format i've quite enjoyed for one thing with my live setup it's um i've got it just behind me there but as i say it was shot. um this thing the 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 modular is it's doing mainly drums but then there's a selena module and there's lots of these other things going on in it that are like i call the blips and bloops it's the the things that accent and for me that worked out best because it was a Total gateway drug for getting into the modular aspect. I will be building a Euro rack once I have the time and can really spec it what I want. And the plan is to build some Euro rack modules um, of my own design, but maybe get at the kit side again because um, the kits I've mo again words aren't working—the <laughs> kits I've mostly done have been standalone, lights of the rackets, things and things of that nature. So it's mostly standalone. But the thing I quite like about that is that it's 5-volt supply. It's regulated down to 5 volts. Now, I've not felt any headroom issues with it, but what I have found is that from a DIY aspect, it's quite good because if you want to build anything, it's, it's such low voltage that you can run Arduinos, um, you can run regulated down, you can effectively take pedal circuits and convert it over. So it's been interesting from a creative point of view to try that out. But I was wondering actually what you thought of that because obviously coming from the Euro rack background.
0: I'm actually a massive fan. I saw that um saw their um system over in um Superbooth in 2019 and I was so impressed by the the quality and the sound that was coming out of this smaller format. Um I thought it was great. You know, I've got I've got you know, I've got great things to say about them. I think they're brilliant, brilliant systems. And to be honest, also like the fact that their modules are quite affordable. I say affordable, but you, you know that they're, they're more reasonable than your standard Eurorack module. That's for sure. So yeah, I'm a massive fan of their stuff. To be honest.
1: Well, that's, it was that that reason alone was what sold me was the affordability. Now I had I had queries at first. It was that how robust is it going to be? Is gigging it going to be reliable? Because for people that don't know, it's it's like breadboard cables. It's um, the same concept, that single pin, um, single strand even. Now, it, it's a good format and it works with that perfectly, but you actually have now modules that bring it into the Eurorack world. Um, you can interconnect using Eurorack cabling. Um, and the, the the affordability thing, for me it's it's dangerous because you're now dealing in pedal money um for the most part. And that's a rabbit hole, as any of the people watching can see. It's a <laughs> rabbit hole. Um and now there's synths that are that rabbit hole money as well, <laughs> which is um dangerous. And you've got other builders now as well. Um
0: monkey stuff. Okay,
1: yeah. Yeah. I didn't know. In the fact, that. there's a guy who I think you would probably um find really interesting to talk to because he runs events, um, like music nights, he runs gigs um, but he builds for that format as a third party builder um, and he's been rebuilding a lot of ro- old Roland drum machine sounds cool. into these new miniature format so it's actually well let's put this way, that's the box for the 1U modules wow <laughs> that's, that's cool <laughs> it's, that cute? Like, it's crazy how tiny Um but they sound huge. And I mean, that is that is the drums in my live rig now, are these, these 1U modules. They sound right. great. I mean, the TR8 sits there for studio use now because that's replaced it. So it's, it's an interesting route it's going. And I think we're going to see probably more, even in the Eurorack world, more developments into price points that are making it more accessible. We've already
0: really seen it. It's definitely something that, uh, you know, I find it a little bit difficult to kind of justify the prices of some of these modules and I I definitely welcome a world where it's much more accessible. People shouldn't really need to spend £400, £500 for a single module to be able to get the enjoyment out of it that that I feel that they need to. Um, Okay Gavin, um, where can people find you on social media?
1: Um, everything is Gavin Forbes music whether it's YouTube Instagram or Bandcamp um, there is a Facebook page but it gets checked about once every three months <laughs> so it's probably not the best place um, but it is there and uh, all the circuitry stuff is done under Melomani effects which hopefully will have more updates soon now that I've got a lot more time to start
0: developing that's great. Um, I don't want to put you on the spot. I know it's a difficult one and people always find this one a bit of a tricky one to answer. But is there any suggestions of anyone out on um, social media that you could give to anyone who's, insp- um, you know, listen to what we've been talking about and be inspired by what you've been talking through today? Is there anyone out there you can give a shout out to?
1: Oh, there's there's a few. <laughs> um,
0: I think Luke Mum
1: No Computer if you're looking to get into the the do-it-yourself, just-have-a-go kind of mentality, very inspiring for that. Um, And he builds some great stuff. Um, From the circuitry point of view, from a guitarist point of view, or a bass player, um, Soundlad Liverpool, who builds some really unique pedals, in the sense that that on face value you go, it's a fuzz, it's an overdrive. It's not A clone of anything, though it's his own doing, but his stories are worth a watch because he'll sometimes break down what he's used in these circuits. And it's you can on face value go, it's a simple thing, you learn a lot every time you do it. Um, so highly recommend them. Some great stuff from uh, now we're on to on the spot, I can't remember his name, but on YouTube, um, it's Moritz Klein. Could be wrong, um. it's this could be wildly wrong, but I'll, I'll I'll give you the the right out of it after. Yeah, that's fine. But he'll do a, a breakdown of a circuit and then go. This is how I designed it, and he'll walk through every step of a circuit design. Um, he's had some modules released as kits with, is it Erica synth? Yeah, that's right. On Thonk. Yeah. Um, again, really interesting stuff. So it's highly recommends i've learned a lot from these guys from yourself as well what you post with your builds thanks man. always great to see um and there's a lot of pedal companies that use and but there's probably guys like gojira and um and funny little boxes calavera from canada they all post some great stuff that you go it's inspiring just to see what the build and it inspires sounds that even if you're you're an avid builder and you're looking for things to process through worth a punt because they've made some really really good stuff
0: cheers gavin that's great i think um that's everything from um today i definitely feel like there's much more we could have talked about but um maybe um in the future we'll have you back on that'd be great
1: oh it'd be brilliant and thanks again for having me hopefully um you'll get a bit more Uh, detailed
0: synth stuff from your your other people (laughs) from a base player's perspective (laughs) I think it's been fantastic it's been great to have you on thanks again thanks again for having me